All right, guys, welcome back to Mogs. Obviously, we've had quite a bit of time off. I have moved. Everyone here has had uh, different stuff happen. But today it is I, Jensen, it is Tom, and then we have a very special guest, Kurt Havens. I'm going to let him introduce himself in a second. But just to preface, we are going to be talking about things that are obviously for educational purposes only. None of us are doctors. This is not medical advice. And while there's a high degree of expertise within the room, especially with Kurt, none of this should be taken for any type of advice. Just listen to it. If you want to employ some of it, feel free to. Um, Kurt, I'm going to let you introduce yourself, and then we can get into the good old AAs, HGH, insulin complex, and your thoughts on that whole big topic. Cool. So um, I'm Kurt Havens. I've been around bodybuilding. I started lifting when I was 12. My dad was an athlete and he had me under a bar when I was a little kid. Um, and then I started competing and getting into coaching in 1996. So I've been around for a long time. Uh, I was part of the original EAS experimental and applied science with Bill Phillips when he did body for life way before you guys were probably even alive. It was kind of the, um, it was basically the first introduction for most people into a body bodybuilding lifestyle that had never bodybuilt before. So he introduced like six meals a day, fasted cardio, all these things to the general population. Um, and so he did a bodybuilding contest where he submitted before and after photos. And I was in the top 100 people out of 10,000 or something. So I became a success coach for them. But that's was kind of my start with that in the 90s. And I, I did that for a while. Um, and then I took some time off my 30s altogether when I was working a corporate job. And then I got back into this in my late 30s. I'm 48 now. So I was education wise. Um, I have five degrees. I want to say I have, I was pre-med. So I have a degree in chemistry. I have a degree in art. I have a master's in chemistry. I have, uh, and I'm working on my MD PhD. So for endocrinology. So for endocrinology, it requires that you have a medical degree as well. But it does not require residency or a fellowship because I will not be practicing. If I wanted to then practice medicine, I would have to do that. But at my age, I'd be 60 by the time I was done with that. So not going to happen. Huh. And so my area of focus is androgen metabolism. So I'm one of maybe two in the world at this moment that, that focuses on that. Most guys do thyroid, diabetes, that kind of stuff. Um, so when I... I kind of started the gear game late. I didn't touch anything until I was 40. I was natural. I competed natural for a long time. I was kind of against it, to be honest with you, uh, at least for myself. I never really saw much of a need for it. And when I went on TRT, I saw such a difference in the way I felt. And it kind of, that's kind of what made me refocus my science to specifically androgens when I realized that there was very little good data on this and the stuff that we were taught in school. And it, and it's the same as what's taught in medical school is, is nothing. It's like avoided. It's talked about in a negative light. And most doctors don't understand this stuff. Sure. That's funny you say that because I feel like a lot of um, bodybuilders actually start using anabolics before they actually start getting into kind of the bro science research about it. So it's funny you took it to the the formal level and obviously to one of the highest levels um, in the field. So that's that's awesome to hear. So uh, Jensen, you want to kick stars with uh, some topics today? Absolutely, or, yeah, absolutely. So the first, I guess this is this is a big question, but let me just provide some context of why this is one of the big ones that I wanted to talk about. So you obviously don't just approach anabolics from the standpoint of, hey, this drug does this. You actually go down into this drug breaks down into these metabolites and these have these downstream effects. It is, For that. I'm going to say extinct to hear anyone talk about them on that level and hearing it on that level mixed with the synergistic effects of HGH, which you've written a full ebook on, which I'll be sure to provide a link for in the description below. Um, I think just would serve a really, really unique uh, purpose in highlighting how things actually work and dispelling a lot of myths just by going deep into it. So what, what do you think is perhaps the biggest myth when it comes to anabolics in general? 
Well, I was going to say to preface that, not just the metabolites that we look at. So I still, I'm one of probably one of the only scientists in the world that still looks at structure function relationships. So when we look at steroids and, you know, we, you and I briefly talked about something like Trestolone. Um, so there's a specific reason why when we design drugs that they're designed that exact way and what each carbon means and what it does. And so that is one of the things that I have to do as well. So when I'm on a project, when we're looking for an outcome, I can alter the molecule based on the structure to give a desired outcome. So we know what all of those things do. And so I can dictate even before metabolites, if you want something more anabolic or less anabolic or more energetic or less, or you want it to not bind to this or bind, like we can play with the structure to come out those things. And then the metabolites will then further enhance depending what we do with it. But yeah, so it's both before and after the drug. A lot of people don't look at it that, that right? They, they just take testosterone, testosterone does this, it grows muscle, but why is it growing muscle? Um, sorry, you, your question was, I totally lost your question. Well, no, no, you're good. I, I figured honestly, when you would talk, I would come up with some of the better questions on the ones I could have come up with beforehand as well. Biggest, but was I, biggest I, myths. I sorry, God. Biggest myth with anabolics. Was that what you? Yeah, I was just, just one, one quick thing I was going to say is that I, I wasn't even aware necessarily of the fact that I knew that we've been, you know, experimenting with trying to create that in a sense, like the perfect drug for X, Y, and Z since 50s, 60s, maybe to some degree before that, but mostly the 60s. And the 30s. Testosterone was actually in 36, and they started working on Perenabol, which was became EQ in 1938, 1939 or 40. Mm -hmm. They started working on it. So for a long time. I I guess I was saying that I I think uh, when most people come into this, they don't understand that you guys already have it down to a science of, hey, you add a group here, you add a carbon here, and we know that it's going to have these effects. On paper. On paper, right? At least um, but yeah, what do you think would be the biggest myth when it comes to anabolics from what the general bodybuilding consensus is? It's a tough question. There's probably lots of them, um, that they all grow. It's a tricky one. Cause I think a lot of people believe they all grow the same amount of muscle. That's been a big one that oh, Victor Black and the safer yeah. model and J3. and I are not so much on the same page with things. I don't really get along with him. Um, <laughs> no one does. He, I don't think anyone does. Yeah. No. Uh, and and he's, been, he's been not receptive to me at all. In fact, he just he just wants to insult me all the time. So I don't, I'm not, I just ignore him. But um, so that's a debatable thing. I think when it depends on what you're looking at. I mean, you talk about nitrogen retention. They all within reason will retain some level of nitrogen. That changes. Esters will change that. Different drugs will change that. Um so that that's not 100% true. And also there are just certain drugs that like, we just don't know, like w- with, with pretty certain, with pretty uh, good certainty, I could tell you that something like Proviron doesn't grow any tissue, right? Halotestin probably doesn't grow any tissue, not in humans. It does in monkeys. It does in rats. Hmm. Um, now it's possible that if the dose were high enough, it would, but what would be the outcome there? I don't know. Um, Masteron is another one that that's heavily debated now. We don't know anything like Masteron. We know less about Masteron than we do about most steroids. So it's really unknown. We don't know the androgen receptor binding. We don't know the estrogen receptor binding. We don't know glucocorticoid. We don't know progesterone binding. We do know it binds to sex hormone binding labelin. That's about it. And then the research kind of stopped there because that's not how it was invented and it failed to do what they thought. So it kind of just moved on from that. Um, I would say most steroids are going to build some level of muscle, right? It probably depends. Things are not always equal on a milligram basis. Something like EQ would perhaps be equal to testosterone on a milligram basis. Same with nandrolone. You know, trembolone is clearly not. Trestolone is not either. I think you it's you run into difficulty because we also judge side effects and other effects as muscle growth. Like people tend, young guys especially tend to judge side effects. Like they'll take Anadrol 50 or Dianabol and the scale, right? I even know guys my age that still will do this. They'll take things, the scale weight will go up and they think they're growing really fast. They don't realize that that's not necessarily tissue. I think you could say that that's one of the things I noticed from Trestolone. The scale goes, if you've ever done, I don't know if you've ever done it before, the scale moves fast and it moves as fast as an oral. 
and you sweat and it, it's it's very dramatic in its initial effects what you net out from that i don't know i i didn't keep any of it so i don't know if that's tissue or not i think if you run trust you just have to run a ton of a dht alongside it unless you are a freak genetically i ran it solo and i ran it daily Okay. At the max dose, whatever CC is 75 milligrams. What's it? What's a CC typically on that? 50, 75. Yeah. 75, something like that. Right. I, whatever. It's been a while. Uh, whatever. But I, I did a CC daily of it and my weight shot up. I probably gained 30 pounds, you know, 20, let's say 25 of that was fluid. Yeah. Um, probably the heaviest I've ever been in not a good way in, in my life. Like my wife was like, what are you doing? <laughs> That's a that's an old school um, nandrolone dianabol. Yeah, but even more dramatic. Like I can take a gram of Deca and not get like that. Really? Like it had a much more dramatic effect on me with water retention than that's than Dan. But everybody's a little different, just depending on how you metabolize things. GH yeah. is like that too. If you take huge amounts, like I've taken eighteen, I've taken balisteristim a day. I was getting a kilo a day for three weeks straight. Oh, three I weeks. kept. I did keep tissue from that though, but not maybe a third of it. I tend to keep tissue pretty well from HGH, but I've ran Trest all the way up to 500. I've ran Nandrolone up to 800. Okay. What I found with Trest is it's tough because when you start to come off, you know, you're eventually going to have to have that test base back in there. I mean, unless you're PCTing off of Trest, but that would be a shit show. Um, so it, it's, it's tough to tell even how much that you keep. I'll say my strength did fly up, but it was kind of like a less toxic anadrol. For me. Um, yeah, my blood work actually looked pretty decent on it. My estrogen was tanked. Really? Yeah. So that's one of the reasons why we've kind of, we keep ditching it. We can get to that in a minute if you want. Have you done labs on it before? They were so long ago and I was younger and stupider. So I did not have a Okay. So if, if you ever do it again, it's worth doing labs because they're pretty cool. Because that bloating effect is clearly not from estrogen. So 7-alpha-methyl-estradiol, which is what that metabolite is, actually binds to the ER receptor the same as estrogen, maybe even with a little more affinity, but it doesn't actually yield any estrogen. Huh. It was a mistake. So that was initially where that drug was going to be used as, you know, basically as a TRT, because it was kind of cool. You could do such a small amount, so effective, and, you know, it basically made it sterile. It, it had all this potential. And then it just showed basically no estrogen and then it just didn't hold. You just couldn't use it because it would cause bone loss long-term. Yeah. And, and the companies are very, most pharmaceutical companies are not super into polypharmacy with steroids. They want one drug that's perfect. And the problem is it doesn't exist. Testosterone obviously is the only one that exists like that. Now, if you were, if you were going to run it again, how much, test do you think would be enough to support i mean that's going to be so individual right because it's going to how much you're trt like a low trt i don't think you need a ton unless you want to use unless you want to use an ai with it right because i i think it's the progesterone effects from ment are going to magnify the estrogen effects you're going to really get you're going to get a huge similar to nandrolone right like you can at least for me i can run if i run 800 let's say nandrolone which is a pretty large amount of nandrolone. I need to use an AI with test with that, but I can run if I ran the same amount of trembolone with test. So like uh, just round numbers, if I ran 800 DECA and 800 test, just ballpark numbers, this is not, again, this is an advice for anyone to do. And I'm making these numbers up. I would need an AI with those two, but if I ran 800 trend and 800 test, I would not necessarily need an AI. Like I don't, I'm not a high aromatizer. I can tolerate testosterone fairly well. Um, the trestolone would magnify that. And same with nandrolone. Wow. That I think, I've never ran trestolone before, so um, no uh, experience at all. All I know is people who've run it alongside testosterone who have absolutely insane estrogenic side effects. But I'm guessing you guys were running it solo, correct? Yeah, or, and that's why we're saying the progesterone, progesterone magnifies the estrogen receptor. So yeah. you're going to get like a magnified, like you said before, you could run it with DHT. If that were an issue, I could see that being, I could see you getting sexual side effects too from it, whether that's from the low estrogen or from a lack of DHT. There's probably a weird, I, I didn't, I, I never ran it long enough. I think I've used it three times. 
the problem I had is it made me hypoglycemic and it became very hard to eat to keep up with the weight gain because you're putting on weight so fast. My metabolism's really fast. And it, I just, I literally was shoveling like bowls of cereal. And my, like I could not stop eating. Like my blood sugar kept plummeting. Yeah, it's, I have a similar experience myself with Trembolone. Like as soon as I go above a certain dose, it's like my blood sugar in the morning is like 59, 60. Wow. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't want it there. Yeah, pretty much hypo. So um, uh, one thing I did want to touch on was Masteron because mm -hmm. you see a lot of people nowadays running, you know, kind of lower dose testosterone, higher dose um, Masteron cycles. Um, in my opinion, just from what I've seen coaching a few people, uh, here and there and for myself is Masteron is not as efficient milligram per milligram, like you were saying, just anecdotally. And it's kind of been uh, the experience, you know, pretty much since like the 90s of what people have been saying is like Masteron isn't strong. But um, nowadays, you know, obviously people kind of use that lateral thinking from the research in order to come to the conclusion that, you know, all anabolics are accrue muscle at the same milligram rate. So they assume Mastron would do, you know, something similar to something like Equipoise or Prima Bolin, which uh, anecdotally has not been my experience. So I do kind of want to, you know, dive a little bit more into that compound uh, specifically and why it may not necessarily in the research, um, at, the, at least in the research, be as anabolic as other compounds. Okay. So I think the first off, you have to look at when they came out with, when Mastron was invented, so it was invented by Lilly and Syntex together. So Lilly actually had the idea, Lilly Pharmaceutical had the idea. Syntex in Mexico City was able to produce it faster. So Lilly sued them and won, and Syntex had to give them partial rights to it. So they split the market in half. Syntex took half of Europe or whatever, and you know Lilly took the other half. Or, um, But it was not designed, at the same time, it was designed as Anadrol and Superdrol. So the three of them came up basically together as a package. And they were they weren't actually looking for Masteron. They were looking for something anabolic for anemia. Anadrol fit the bill the best. It was the most efficient at red blood cell production of those three. Superdrol worked, but it wasn't, it was the second best. So they literally shelved it. And the funny thing about Superdrol that a lot of people get wrong is the name Superdrol is not some cute play on the term like because it's like a super anadrol it's because it's super saturated at carbon two it has a double bond and a methyl group so it's that's actually the chemical like that would be like the chemical name it's, it's not like a, a supplement name that was invented for yeah. when it came out as a pro hormone um masteron went it basically in the initial studies it really didn't show any tissue so they they were started to explore what else they could use it for and they realized that it looked like it had potential in women's breast cancer so then they just shifted, then they pulled all the stuff. That's why there's no Hirschberger essay and stuff testing anabolism in it because they realized it wasn't doing that. So they just shifted it, marketed it really fast so they could keep it FDA approved. Right? The FDA is very harsh on these drugs. If they don't have a real purpose, they're not going to keep it out. So they they shifted it over to that. And that's basically where it ran until they realized that it wasn't, it, it virilizes. So it's not going to be the greatest option for that. If a woman is dying, sure, it it's better than death in most cases, but it's not really a great option. Um, where, so what I, what I was taught was Masteron is basically, you would consider it an anti-proliferic agent. It's not an anabolic steroid. So yes, technically it has the same structure, right? Similar to, it's similar to Proviron or Masteron, uh, similar to, uh, 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 Anavar or any of those, not Masteron, it is Masteron. Um, it just doesn't seem to do the same thing. So it acts as, a, so a lot of this was learned later on when we started looking at metabolites, not initially. They didn't have the they didn't have the ability to do this stuff, so it basically acts as a serum and it blocks estrogen receptor beta, which is considered the bad one. You need both in the human body, but beta is generally where cancer will go through. So it seems to block that, and by interacting with that, it also seems to cause a little bit of anabolism. There is some data to show that interaction with estrogen receptor beta can be slightly anabolic, but generally for you and I, not really great enough that it's worth using. It also lowers aldosterone. So you get this mineral excretion and that's when you use Masteron, you tend to get really dry and stringy looking. That's why we use it when we prep, right? So it's, and that's the interesting thing is it's actually not lowering estrogen. It's just blocking estrogen at the receptor site and because it's affecting water balance, you'll get a sodium excretion, a water excretion from it. So it creates that nice dry look. But at least for me, when you use it in the off season, I like my muscles feel like I'm, 
sore isn't the right word. You just feel too dry. It's like using Winstrol to grow. Mm-hmm. Like doesn't seem like the greatest option uh, versus like primobalum. If you've ever used real, real primobalum is a fantastic drug. Probably the, if it could aromatize, it would be the perfect steroid. That's its only downfall in my mind because it can't convert to estrogen. Otherwise it's low side effect, right? I mean, it's pure tissue expression. It doesn't really grow. It doesn't really cause any cancers or organ growth or any of these other things that you see with some of these other drugs. Long term, it doesn't seem to cause mental problems. Um, but yeah, so going back to Mastron, it's just that it's it's not that Mastron doesn't grow tissue. We don't know. And it's never been studied like that. It The initial studies in the ni- late 1950s, or early 1960s, it failed at that. So it's not been looked at. So no one can really say that. It doesn't mean that it doesn't. I think then to magnify it where we stand now in this community, and this was kind of like when I then made my profile public and I started to, like I'd been doing this for years behind the scenes. I didn't realize that anyone actually cared about this stuff until I met Paul Barnett. Um, where I think a lot of the current thought comes from is guys like Victor Black became, they took this anti-anti-estrogen thing way too far, right? So I think the problem in bodybuilding that I see with everything is there's no middle ground. Everything is extreme. It's over here, it's over here, and we don't ever do anything here with logic, right? We're always like swinging. So in the 90s or early, sorry, in the early 2000s, everyone crushed their estrogen, right? Now everyone, like one or two doctors a couple of years ago came out and were like, you know, estrogen has some benefits. So maybe we don't crush our estrogen. But then people took that statement and then they extrapolated this, this thing where you now you just run your estrogen really high. And, but people still need a way to control the side effects from it. So then they realized that they could use things like primobolin, which acts as an AI to some extent, or Mastron, which acts as a serum to kind of control this thing, right? And then they could simultaneously agree with the statement not to use an AI. The, the problem where it goes too far, at least in my opinion, is someone will say, so Ruminex has been proven safe for a long time. Now, again, anything in extreme amounts doesn't make any sense, right? But you don't want to crush your estrogen. You want your estrogen in range. Guys will say that things like Arimidex are toxic, harmful for you, right? But then at the same time, they'll use two grams of Mastron, which that doesn't make any sense to me because Mastron's never been studied on men. So how could you say Mastron's safe, but Arimidex is not, right? Because we study, Arimidex has been studied on men. Exactly. That that's that's one thing that I've seen so often uh, nowadays is the demonization of AI use, and it's kind of like fashion trends, right? You know, you it swings with time. Like the pendulum is never in this middle ground; it's always one way or the other, and it's only going to swing back. Um, and hopefully, you know, people like Kurt uh, will. That's help. that's my goal. I think so. Where uh, like and where a lot of this stuff came from, the guys like Victor were taking the data from, and again. It's, I don't want to blame him per se or guys like him because I think part of it's just flawed learning. They don't have access to the full studies. They're reading abstracts and they don't, they, they don't necessarily, they don't necessarily understand what they're reading or they weren't taught to read those studies. So they're pulling the wrong numbers out of things without understanding the context. So I could show you studies that show that estrogen is good or bad, but if I don't show you what you're actually reading, you might just come up, formulate some belief system based on it, but that doesn't mean it's accurate. So where I don't know if you've ever heard me talk about the Trembolone thing. So I've been fortunate enough that I'm able to work on some projects with Trembolone um, in animal stuff. And one of the really cool things I learned is that estrogen in ruminants like cattle is anabolic. So you give a cow estrogen and it grows, its IGF goes up and it it grows. And when you read those studies, that's what people, that's what that you see, but you don't realize that humans produce something called insulin growth factor binding protein one, which cows do not. So when our estrogen goes up, we bind the IGF, even though it shows in serum as being elevated, it's now bound and useless. So you're not going to grow from it, which makes sense. The way humans developed, if, if your estrogen was elevated, why would you be putting muscle on? Your estrogen would only be elevated if you had a tumor or if something was wrong with you. It's not just in nature. It's not just going to get elevated for no reason as a man. And in women, it's not anabolic either. It's progesterone that causes muscle growth. That's where nandrolone comes from. Nandrolone is actually the the innate hormone that's in females that allows the fetus to grow. So estrogen is needed. So just to clarify, estrogen is needed to some extent, right? You need some level of estrogen at the liver for IGF to be produced. That doesn't mean that having a 200 nanogram estrogen is going to be more anabolic than having a 40. That's where people go wrong. And just because they see the serum amount go up, they assume that this anabolism is increasing. The problem is it's bound. Mm. 
if that makes any sense. So this is where the master, so going to why I'm saying that this is where the Mastron thing came from, because then guys were afraid of AIs, but they realized that they were getting gyno and they're holding water. They had rings on their ankles from their socks. They're like, we got to do something. So they were like, well, Mastron seems to be pretty dry. Let's add Mastron. And then it got really extreme. So then it was pro bodybuilders taking two grams of test and they had to use two grams of Mastron to control their estrogen. But is that any safer than using one milligram of Arimidex two, what, twice a week? Probably not. That's the problem is there's no science there. Yeah, and that's where it comes to trial and error, right? And obviously, uh, for the most part, at least what I've seen anecdotally from looking at, you know, at least hundreds of people's blood work now um, at this point in time is that AI use isn't necessarily as harsh on lipids as long-term Mastron usage at high dosages. I've seen some people come to me using Mastron at like one and a half grams for over, you know, maybe six months straight. And they are, HDLs are like a nine, <laughs> which is absolutely ridiculous. And then uh, people who are using, you know, moderate AI use for like years on end have relatively normal HDL levels. Now, how relevant HDL is, you know, that's up for debate, but uh, it's just one thing I've, I've noticed at least. Yeah, I, I was actually looking for mine. I'll show you mine. Could send you my recent blood work. So I've been using Reminex on and off for about a decade, and I was going to tell you what my HDL was recently. My doctor said it was the best cholesterol he's ever seen. So again, a lot of right, you have genetic factors, you have lifestyle factors, you have diet. But there's other the cardio, you have other things that go into cholesterol. And like you just said, is cholesterol the end all be all of your health? Definitely not. Right, APOB is a better marker, but. Um, it's still relevant. And when we look, when we're coaching people, it's important that we pay attention to these things because you don't want to be given, you don't want to be recommending gear to people who their metrics are way skewed because you're going to yeah. harm them. Without yeah. a doubt, you're going to cause harm. Um, now, one other thing um, I did want to mention was about the um, IGF binding protein one, because that's kind of, I guess, relevant to the topic of the GH axis um, that we we're talking about. So, Obviously, we know there's a balance in what I usually like to see for most people on cycle, where their estrogen is around maybe like 50 to 80, 50 to 90, around that kind of range, um, maybe a little bit lower for TRT, obviously. Um, but in that range, that's typically where I found people feel the best, but they don't get gyno. Um, is there any type of range that you would kind of extrapolate from the research of where you know people should kind of be looking at? to keep their estrogen, obviously from this conversation, they know too high is bad, too low is bad, but what necessarily is too high or too low and what is that middle ground? It pretty close to what you're saying. I think the, I think the, the background of it is when you're looking at hormones that people need to be treated as individuals too, and not as paper, right? So like, just because there's a range on labs doesn't mean that that's always going to be great. TSH is a great example of that the range that's listed on labs is not an accurate range for health at all. Like it should be on the way low end of that, never on the high. Um, I would say depending what really is going to matter is how they feel their side effects, right? Which is an individual thing because you could have a 29 estradiol and be totally fine, or you could have 29 and be crushed. And I think then the third thing is what the androgen load is. Like you just said with TRT versus a cycle. So if they're on you know, if they're on 200 milligrams of test, I don't want to see an 80 estradiol. Yeah. Like, cause the person that I picture there is probably heavier, right? They probably are holding a ton of water. If they're running two grams a gear and they're, or, you know, let's aromatizing steroids like testosterone. Let's say that, yeah, I would be comfortable with it going as high as 80. I think much more than 80 starts to get a little funky. Um, in most people, it's not to say that you couldn't run a higher. I know guys that feel okay with it higher, but I'm not sure what they're getting out of it is becomes the question. Um, but I think that's a safe place. If your testosterone, your total test is in the two thousands on paper, three thousands on paper. I don't see a problem between having estrogen 50 to 80. If that makes sure. sense. It's supposed to be a ratio. Definitely. Um, is your, is this screen kind of frozen for you, Jensen? I was going to say oh. it froze. It has a, uh, it has a thumbs up thing that it popped up when he started doing this for a second. Can I disconnect for a second? Let me disconnect. And let me, yeah. let me. My, yep, there we go. Sorry. You want me to say, so my last, my last labs, my total cholesterol was a 118. My HDL was a 46 and my triglycerides were at 39 and my LDL was 61. 
<laughs> so when I was on about a gram of gear, nothing crazy for me. That's not quite a cruise. It probably honestly is a cruise at this point, but it's not. It's definitely not a blast. So, uh, and I was on six units of growth. My fasting glucose was seventy seven. My my A one C was a five even. That's primo. What's up? Test and Primo. I was on Test and Primo. Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I was on six hundred. I actually I was not, not using an AI at the time, but I I, I normally do. I was on six hundred Test and two hundred Primo. Okay. Six Tom refer to Primo's vitamin P jokingly because uh, we've both had some nice nice effects that are similar to yours from that. It's just like wow, this like you said, if it made estrogen, it really would be the best anabolic out no, there. It's really a shame that like, and there were not. Not to go to tended there, but the problem is we're not really going. There is really no room to go there anymore. Those molecules have all been pretty much designed when we make them using. So back in the day, they were made by hand. Like someone like me would draw them, and then you would experiment. You'd physically make it, and then you'd take years, and then you would test on animals first. Nowadays, we can literally plug things into a computer. Like I can type anything. I could be very specific, or I could be very vague. Like I can put in. Trembolone and Anavar, and it'll it'll give me any combination that combines the two of those drugs together, and then it'll spit the molecules out. It'll spit a hundred molecules out that are unheard of, that have never been seen before ever. But most of them are not valid drugs. When you look at them, like they're just toxic. There's something wrong with them. They're flawed. The computer can't think that way, so it doesn't understand. Now maybe someday the computer can understand metabolism that way, but. Then it takes someone like me then to look at this thing and be like, we can't make this drug. It's going to kill somebody. I mean, if you can develop a chat GPT that makes steroids, I think you're going to be a billionaire, Kurt. So there's Yeah, one. I don't know. Yeah, it just, I'm not sure what there is actually left out there is the problem. Yeah. So now I think where most of it's going is metabolites. We're And it's not going to be beneficial for you or I. It's what metabolites of which drugs can now be used for cancer. Okay. If they're not going to spend money, no one, no one is going to spend the money now to, to redo Mastron. It wouldn't make any sense. No one cares. But if they could find, right, because that last metabolite thing, I don't know if you saw it. I think I posted a link to it. The last metabolite test on Mastron showed that there were a bunch of anti-carcinogens in the metabolites, but two of the metabolites were were uh, cytotoxic. So when guys are like, whoa, Mastron can stop cancer, some of the metabolites can, some of the metabolites actually can cause cancer. So it's like, it's kind of hit or miss. So the drug itself is flawed. Is some of that metabolite research also done for, you know, anti-doping like WADA uh, or are they kind of... We kind of know that stuff. This is like another step further. Like what you're trying to look for is the the actual byproducts that are coming out of the body so we can detect that. This is a little bit deeper. So we basically use like a fungus or E. coli bacteria to break it down. So basically you're seeing what's occurring in the body, but you don't see the byproduct stuff. So okay. the, like they're metabolites that you would never see, but they are occurring at some level. So it's kind of cool. It's like an intermediate step in there that we just missed that you would never. And, and the math, like if you try to draw the molecule out, it's not going to show you that. It's really cool. Yeah, it's really cool. But that's kind of where, that's unfortunately where that research is now. They're not, no one's like outside of random projects, but those things are not funded or published. Like if I'm asked to work on something for anabolism, it's not generally, it's not going to be in PubMed. They don't, that stuff they don't do anymore. They don't need to publish. They don't want to publish. Mm. They don't want to test in that way. It's not for, it will never be for you or I. That makes any sense. Mm. We could talk about it more offline. I don't know what level. Cause <laughs> I, stuff. Um, I wish they would put it on PubMed, man. I don't want to be, even though I probably could interpret half of it. I'd, I'd like yeah, no, I mean, no, you would understand it. It's just that it doesn't have any application for, and it's not being used for things like they want people to see. That okay. makes sense. That makes sense. Um, oh. Yeah, but that's few and far between. And I only see that because I'm like the only one. There's not a ton of, that's, there's not a whole, there's not a field out there of people doing that stuff. It's not commonplace if it makes any sense like trembolone is probably getting more trembolone probably has more money and research pumped into it because animal stuff you know outside of that there's and testosterone still gets studied now as far as trembolone for cattle growth and stuff how much of that is actually allowed to be pumped into cows in the u.s currently? oh it's used 90 million head of cattle yearly use it it's legal it doesn't show any direct harm to us consuming it 
we have to figure first of all the metabolites of the the two main metabolites of trembolone are reduced from andro they're not as androgenic as actual trembolone so yeah. it reduces so testosterone gets more androgenic as it reduces and trembolone goes the opposite way and you couldn't you couldn't absorb them anyway because you have a liver that's why it's not orally available like you just they actually did a study it's pretty disgusting where they they call it it was like the hamburger study. They basically injected Tren into hamburgers and then fed them to people and to see what would come out. And sure enough, you just pass it out. You didn't get any of it. So there was no, no, that doesn't mean I would do that on purpose. I, <laughs> I definitely wouldn't do that to children or women, but it's, unfortunately it's done and it's given in a way, the pellets are given in the middle ear. And then as soon as a cow slaughtered, the ear is removed. So any, like if there's residue, it's gone. You will find those ears though in pet stores if you have a dog. Or if you ever, you have a dog. Yeah. yeah. You go and you find like the cow ear in the pet store. That's like the hardened cartilage oh. thing that you're supposed to chew on. It's just, a trend. <laughs> that's like a trend here. Basically. Oh, oh my God. Oh, I'm going to make my dog so fucking jacked now. Thank you for that. I don't think I've been unfortunately It's still not going to work as a liver, but it's just funny yeah. to think about that's what that is though. Are there any, I mean, it, this is kind of going a little bit off topic, but it's still, still sort of par for the course. Is there anything that would be orally bioavailable through cow meat that we are injecting into cows or is no, it? No, no, okay. no. And that's the thing. And they also play with those things too. Like, what, like, like, what, like, like the growth hormone and stuff, like, what are you going to get from? And it's those bovine growth hormone. It's not even human. So it's like, even if you inject it, it's not going to do anything. It's not 191. So yeah. it wouldn't do anything for you anyway. I was like, if if all you needed to do is eat more steak to get like an extra yeah, item. No, unfortunately, no. Yeah. But that, I mean, the FDA is careful about that stuff. They're not going to let. Yeah. You know, and there's a ton of money invested in this stuff. Like I said, 90 million head of cattle a year. You know, Merck, who owns the rights to Revlar, it spends a ton of money to make sure it's safe. Hmm. So um, before we get too off topic, I just want to make sure we touch one thing is yeah. the insulin. Um, in terms of the the GH to IGF-1 axis. Um, I kind of wanted to talk about how that could be leveraged, how it is currently leveraged in uh, bodybuilding and uh, how, you know, people may not necessarily be leveraging it in correct ways. So, um, or not necessarily correct, but may not necessarily be as efficiently used um, for the purposes meant for um, in terms of bodybuilding. So as far as using... GH insulin and anabolics for growth. Correct. Um, what would be the correct way? Well, I mean, if you wanted the maximum growth, you're going to clearly, you're going to use anabolics as a stack, right? I would say ideally it's testosterone. If you don't tolerate that, it's probably nandrolone as some sort of base, right? And that's going to vary depending on the person. Um, growth, the numbers basically work out to four to six units, four to six I use basically is like the minimum threshold for growth. It kind of mimics what was going on during puberty. And, and you've probably seen that too in your own experience. Like five units is about the slowest you could take to get any sort of growth out of it. And then, um, you know, insulin used concurrently. Now, my, I'm not a fan of Lantus for people that aren't diabetic. I, I don't, it's just a background of insulin. It's not super anabolic. It's to replace that. You know, we all have a background of insulin that's constantly produced. It's just to replace that. It's not supposed to be you know, producing anabolism. So then it's like a short acting. I think the smartest way to use something like that is it's a short acting on your high days. Like if you're carb cycling, your high days, you know, maybe pre-workout, maybe post-workout, something when your carbohydrates are really high and you can actually use the insulin. I'm not a big fan of people leveraging it every day unless you really need to. If you were at the, if you're at the point where you're big enough, if you're 290 pounds and you're going to the Olympia stage, one, you're probably not watching this for my advice because you already know. And two, that's your career and that's what's needed. Like the guys that I talk to that, that are that big, that's just required in order to eat that much food. I don't think the three of us require that level of stuff. Like we physically can't eat that much that we'd really need it. Yeah. Like Roman Fritz, that guy, that guy eats like what, like thousand grams of carbs. Yeah. I talk to Roman almost every day. That's yeah. I mean, he eats a lot of freaking food. He's eating a hundred grams of carbs, a hundred grams of protein in every meal. He eats a lot of food. Insane. So that's also his career, right? Like we all do this in, in some, this is like our income as well, but like you, you're not, you're not losing a hundred thousand dollar endorsement if you don't make, yeah. you know, top five somewhere, you know, the Japan pro or something. So I get it for these guys. They have to push the envelope and safety is not necessarily their first concern. Now to speak on um, 
you know, we kind of touched on the, the upper levels of bodybuilding right there. But what I see is kind of people extrapolating that and um, kind of using insulin for, you know, beginners, people before they even touch anabolics and growth hormone, uh, which is honestly something that I can't really find a way that makes sense for most people in that kind of context to leverage. Um, even women, um, I've seen that before where people are like, you know, let's use, you know, insulin before we touch um, testosterone or anabar or um, growth hormone or other non-androgens. And in my head, at least the way I conceptualize is like you said, what natural bikini competitor has the food requirement for insulin? Not really. What natural 180 pound kid really has, you know, the, the food requirement for insulin? It's not really there. And also without, you know, having that anabolic background, uh, not background, but, you know, having anabolics in play in the background as well as growth hormone cr creates that kind of synergy alongside exogenous insulin use. So without those two things, you may not necessarily be getting as much out of the insulin as you could. Yeah. Um, is that kind of, does that kind of make sense with how you conceptualize things as well? A hundred percent. I'm not, a. I, I think that it would be the, to me, insulin would be like the last train on the, the last car on the train. I don't think it should be used by necessarily younger people. Again, unless you are going, if your trajectory is going to the Olympia, then by all means that you know more than me at that point. Um, it definitely not before on a box. It doesn't make any sense because it would, you would get more out of, Initially, at least, you'd get more out of testosterone. If we're talking about men, it's probably easier to talk about men. Women, slightly different. You get more out of testosterone, right, initially, at least for a long time, than you would out of insulin. They're they're taking data from burn victims on insulin, showing it causes anabolism. And again, like, that's something that I've worked around. When you have a burn that covers 85% of your body, your metabolism is like three or four times as fast as a normal person. So you're losing tissue at a really fast rate. There's an entirely different metabolic thing going on that you and I just don't have. So that's, you're taking data from these people and you're trying to apply it to a bodybuilder. It's the complete opposite thing. Um, it's not to say that it's not anabolic. It is, but it's not as anabolic as people think. And it needs to be combined with all those things, right? Like I would leverage test another anabolic first. Like I would do just, I think everyone should just start with testosterone. I don't know where this comes from when people are trying to do other things. Testosterone. And if you're not competing, you could probably get everything out of testosterone that 90% of the other drugs would give you, right? Like realistically, if your diet and your training is not on point and you don't have fantastic genetics, is taking trend going to make you look any different than testosterone? Probably not. I see kids in gyms all the time that use trend that don't look like they're on anything. So I think you do it the right way. I think growth hormone comes into play when you've reached, like I used it when I ran out of genetics, I hit a wall and I could not get any bigger. So you then, that's at least the way I would use it. Then you leverage that in there because you get more cells, right? Especially if you guys are young, if you're in your twenties or thirties, you have tons of stem cells left. Not to say that you can't use it because if you have aspirations of being a pro, you probably need to use it. But that's the smartest ways to leverage it when you've run out of room with antibiotics without going so high in the dose that you're now really stressing your health. And then things like insulin can be used on top of that when then you're eating so much food and you're trying to get more IGF out of the growth hormone, right? IG, IGF responds basically to glucose. It's an energy sensor. It's not an estrogen sensor. It requires estrogen presence, but it doesn't need estrogen. It's not using estrogen as a measurement to when, make, to, when to make IGF, the liver I'm talking about. So it's, it makes sense because in nature, again, when we evolved, if, you, if we lived in the woods, we didn't have any food, especially carbohydrates, why is your body going to put on muscle? It's not going to grow just because you, you know what I mean? You, humans are incredibly strong at their natural size. They don't necessarily need to carry tons of mass in order to catch deer. So there was no point in necessarily getting super big unless you had tons of food. So that's, that's things IGF work. Um, yeah. Insulin, I think would be the last thing I would add in there. And honestly, most guys probably never need to go that road. I coach, I have a, a, a bunch of pros that I coach and more, more of them don't use insulin than do. I actually have a couple, two pros that don't use growth. Wow. Do you think a lot of the use of insulin that people say, oh, well, you know, your blood glucose is getting high because we're pounding a bunch of food and you're on a bunch of HGH, so we got to throw the insulin in there to bring the blood glucose down. Do you think a lot of that is just from people being too fat, just not staying lean enough throughout the year? I think yeah, that's so, a misconception, but I want your opinion. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I think you guys are 100% right about all this stuff. I think 
you look at, you get labs, right? Everyone should get labs. If you're going to run drugs, you need labs. You need, to, you need to have a doctor that you can trust, or at least if you're in a state where you can write your own labs, get your own labs and then consult someone if you don't understand what you're looking at. You know what I mean? I look at people's labs every day. Like I will gladly look at someone's labs if they don't know what they're looking at. Um, you you look at A1C, you look at fasting glucose. They're going to change when you use growth hormone. You might see A1C go up slightly because your average blood glucose is going to be slightly higher from growth hormone. But as long as your fasting glucose is not above 90, I'm not that concerned. When it goes above 90, maybe revisit some things, at least think about what you're doing carefully. And when it starts to go above 100, perhaps it's not the right method. That To me, that doesn't mean add insulin might mean maybe use less growth hormone or lose some body fat. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe a GDA if you've already explored the lose body fat. Cause some people I do feel like genetically do sit higher. Totally. And that's fine. But if that's, but, but then you could look at other metrics too. Like you want to make sure the triglycerides are not high. Other things that are then going to be our big risk factor. If your glucose is high, Yeah, right? you'll generally see triglycerides will shoot up when, when glucose goes too high. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Even speaking on GDAs, I've even moved away from that personally uh, with like a lot of clients, just because I've seen so many issues, even with berberine um, in terms of being an antimicrobial and some people coming back with like GI maps where their commensal bacteria is just like completely messed up from, you know, long-term berberine usage or metformin usage, those things, the impact that those things have on the gut isn't fully understood. We do know, you know, berberine is an antimicrobial to some degree. We do know metformin does change the gut microbiome to some degree, but we don't necessarily know the extent of it because the research on the microbiome is so limited at this yeah. time. And so, we're not taught, like, I, that's not something I was ever taught. So, the, like, GI mapping is not something I know anything about. Like, I've seen it, but it doesn't mean it's not, a, I can show you the curriculum, it's not something that's ever taught. So, regular doctors aren't going to know anything about that stuff. And when we learn about things like metformin, we use them in the classic sense. So I think metformin can be a valuable drug, but we're not looking at it for bodybuilders. And I think it can be useful, but also it's going to lower IGF. So what is your goal? I, I would rather shift other metrics in my life to get my glucose down to an appropriate level versus use now something that's going to lower IGF. That's going to require more drugs. Exactly. Right? That's the other thing too, is that everyone nowadays is using all these things prophylactically, telbosartan, metformin. They're just medicating themselves with all these things because they think that that's what they should be doing. And again, a lot of that probably comes from Victor. Yeah. He was just pushing all these drugs like blood pressure medicine. If you don't have elevated angiotensin two and you use telbosartan, it's not doing anything. There's literally no reason to use it. So I've seen so many people come back with such elevated potassium levels in their blood from using Telmisartan as yep. well. So many people go in hypo, uh, hyperkalemic actually, um, you know, pre-contest because they're using Telmisartan unknowingly along with potassium sparing diuretics, along with potassium loading food. And then, you know, you wonder why people are hyperventilating backstage or uh, on the verge of passing out. It's because you know better about the polypharmacy and how those things impact the electrolytes and what you're actually doing with that pharmacology itself. Yeah. So. And they don't, they don't learn this stuff. They just, they just take these drugs because someone on the internet told them to take these drugs. Right. I mean, your goal, like, again, going back to the way humans developed, you should ideally have a 16 to one potassium to salt ratio, but we've skewed it now with these drugs. It's now too potassium sparing. Right. So now what's occurred is now everyone's adding salt to their diet. But if you think that doesn't make any sense either. I mean, it does, if you're taking drugs that are potassium sparing, but why have we gotten to a place where we're ingesting sodium on purpose? That doesn't do what people like. You're not all of a sudden holding more carbohydrates because you drink salt water, right? Sodium's on the outside of the cell. Sure. Everything's just backwards now with the way we think about these things. And again, I'm not anti-sodium. I just think if you look at what bodybuilders are doing, it's so backwards. And we're stacking all these weird things on top of each other to combat a side effect from the previous drug. Yeah, that's just so true. And it's, uh, one thing about the whole metformin thing is like at the end of the day, if you're, you know, a humongous, at least carrying a decent amount of muscle mass and getting to that point and you're not necessarily fat and your blood glucose is running high, I would think that's not necessarily an insulin sensitive or insulin resistant issue. It's just that your carbohydrate requirements are pretty much saturated and now you're eating above what your body can actually, you know, soak into tissues and whatnot so at that point it would just be a matter of pulling back food or adding in some cardio or training intensity or uh you know you know proper coaching practices versus just throwing drugs in to you know fix issues just because you can 
There um, is there is also an effect too that you, I don't know if you guys seen the blood work. It's named after a woman. I'm drawing a blank. Uh, it's named after the doctor who who discovered it. If sometimes if you test people's fasting glucose in the morning, it's high, but they're not. They're clearly not pre diabetic, right? The ones you won't read. The old effect. That's it. Uh, yeah. So like I don't know. A lot of people don't understand that. That's bodybuilders get that often because the way we eat, right? You're eating right before you go to bed. It's it's still elevating as you sleep, and then you wake up and it's high. That doesn't mean you're pre-diabetic. So as long as you guys know to like check that kind of stuff, because it's not always the whole story. Exactly. Yeah, I had a client freaking out because he's like, "Oh my god, my BG is at 94," and I'm like, "Yeah, but you came to be at 90, and you've gotten leaner." So I had to explain the whole dawn effect thing, and he's like, "Oh, it's like higher in the morning." I'm like, "Yeah, your cortisol's higher in the morning." Maybe dumping energy in your bloodstream. I was like, yeah, you don't need to worry about it unless we actually see something bad from it. Yeah, like, yeah was, unless you're able to see 5.7 or something. Like, you know, yeah. that's why it's good to look at multiple things on just one number. Yep, not just one. Can't just, you can't just cherry pick one thing and be like, oh my God, everything's a mess. Like if we did that as bodybuilders, we would, ne we would never grow. Yeah, We're yeah, never anyway. going to be perfectly healthy, unfortunately. Yeah. Like, And it's all, every marker essentially only is in context of your you know, kind of inflammation rate at the time, as well as oxidative stress and allosteric load. It's not necessarily just in the context of what those markers are and how they relate to one another. It's also in relation to the environment you're putting your body in, in that particular time. And that's only a snapshot of, you know, what that is in that particular time. So, you know, on top of blood work, obviously we all know organ imaging at some point in time, maybe getting an echo here and there would not hurt. Uh, but besides that's, I guess that's just getting off topic at this point. No, I mean, I know it's all relevant. I think to health. I mean, I, I only have one kidney. I was born with one kidney and I didn't learn that until I was almost 40. So like, I wouldn't know that if I didn't get organ imaging, my kidney functions as two, cause it's since I was born the way it developed bigger. And if on blood work, it totally, you would never even know that because it's filtering totally fine. But my point is if I didn't know that, and I took a bunch of potassium sparing diuretics and I took a ton of tren and I didn't have any estrogen and I did all these things that a lot of bodybuilders do, I could easily go into kidney failure and I wouldn't know. They wouldn't find out until I had an autopsy. And this, you see this stuff all the time that people don't pay any attention to their health. Very true. So Jensen, you have um, any other questions to add to um, the topic for Kurt? Just a, a little quick one, because I know we've been here for an hour. I'm sure you got other stuff to do. But going way, way back to the AI talk, uh, I know you mentioned that you use a Remedex on and off for a while now. I was, at least the traditional knowledge or what I was told years ago, is that aromasin is supposed to be easier um, on your lipid profile than a Remedex, and that also there can be an estrogen rebound effect from a Remedex. But I use a Remedex, so I was curious as to why choosing that over aromasin. Uh, I've, so yeah, on paper, aromasin does look really like a fantastic drug. The problem is in practice, you don't generally see it being that good of an AI. Okay. I don't know if you, I don't know what your experience with aromasin is. It generally doesn't work as well as it, it should. You generally don't see the reduction in estrogen like you would expect. I've never personally seen an estrogen rebound like that, even in women with cancer. Okay. So, um, sometimes you see that. I, the only time I generally see an estrogen rebound is after prep. Like someone comes out of a show, the food has gone up, the gear has gone up, whatever's a lot of metrics of change. And you might see an estrogen rebound there, but I don't typically see it from removing an AI. It could, it could happen concurrently if you're using an AI only for prep to draw to dry out. Right. And then you remove the AI and all of a sudden you, you now shoot your body fat up and you do all these other things. Another little question related to the AIs. Do you think tapering them down towards the end of a prep may be a good idea or that perhaps it's just unnecessary to have an AI at the very end of prep if you're actually stage lean and have been close to that for a few weeks because your estrogen is already so low? Like, do you think it becomes overkill at that point or do you think it's best to just not change anything and just leave that in and that's massively overthinking? It probably depends more on the person and their condition, right? Like, I don't know if there's one straight answer. I would say... If you're leaving test in mm -hmm. at a decent dose, depend again, this is totally depends on the person and the coach. I see everything from no test to a gramma test in. Um, and depends on the person's condition, how they aromatize, right? I mean, sometimes you get that little bit of extra fat, like along the back, like right at the top of the trunk, some little weird area that like an AI might help with potentially. Mm -hmm. 
other times, you know, the, the one that I see that, that just appears wrong to me is when guys remove the test fully and then they're running an AI. Cause at that point, I'm not sure what you're actually blocking. That didn't make any sense to me, but I think if you're leaving for an, a, a guy with average genetics and average drug use and fairly lean, if you're using, you know, if you're going into a show with 300 tests in there as a base, you probably don't need an, that much of an AI at the end, especially if you're using things like Mastron, using Winstrol, using Anabol, like depending on what you're stacking with, it's probably on an individual basis, but it's probably not needed. Some of the bigger guys that run a gram into a show, perhaps it's needed. I always switch to propanate. That way I can make a decision, and not just for me, but for my clients. I generally switch to propanate so I can make a decision to adjust or remove if I need to. Mm -hmm. In that case, I would just pull an AI. If an AI is even used, it depends on the person. I don't always use an AI with everybody. I don't know if that's too vague of an answer for you. No, that's perfect. That's, I mean, that's kind of what I was thinking, but explain a lot more thoroughly. Right. I mean, I think usually going into a prep, I would say if usually I would bring the gear up, right? Like if you're looking at, Without giving doses, because I feel like one, that's not ethical, and two, like people don't eat your doses. But like I feel yeah. like if you like generally the first half of prep, you're generally running more anabolism, right? You might be using test, EQ, perhaps long extra trend, depending on the person. I know it's not so popular now, but it still works. And a lot of guys will still do it even if they don't talk about it. That's another funny thing that I think is a lot of the pros and a lot of the coaches say this, they do this. <laughs> like they're using test and master on, but they're really using test and trick. They and they do it healthy. because it sounds better. It, it's healthy. Yeah, they want to sound it's, it's grams of drugs, but it's healthy. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think at that point, it's, you know, then you use an AI every other day. So you use a milligram of Remedex every other day going in, right? And then when you switch to short esters, you probably have to assess what they look like. Like, if they're really wet and soft, and no matter what you do, perhaps it's that, perhaps it's something else. You know, it, you, there's other ways to move water balance, fat. I, at the end of the day, you got to be lean. Like, an AI is not going to make up for being fat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I will say, um, not to make this racial whatsoever, but I have a couple of friends who are um, African-American who compete and they all um, are pretty adamant about using pretty heavy AI use towards really? the end. Like pretty much all across the board, I've noticed like a uh, pretty significant difference, even if their estrogen is probably sub-zero, they pretty much crash it and like they end up looking pretty decent compared to times that they haven't. So Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I always look the best when I crash mine, but... yeah. Yeah, me neither. I, I would be very, very flat. <laughs> I think um, I think it just, a lot of it depends on the person doing the look you're going for and how willing, like the sacrifice you're willing to make too. We all know that when you get on stage, there there's a certain level of sacrifice. It depends on what you're willing to do. Exactly. You know, like I basically, I'll, I'll ruin myself for a couple of weeks if I have to. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. Or some clients just aren't interested in doing that, right? Their wife will get mad at them. Stuff doesn't work. But like, unfortunately, that's... Part of the game yeah yeah i mean regardless of drug use shit's not working <laughs> exactly <laughs> hey man enough pt141 in cialis you'd be amazed what can happen <laughs> <laughs> but we'll say pt141 for another episode but uh i'll wrap us up here but kurt thank you so so much for having us on um if it has not become abundantly apparent to everyone he is a true rare expert in this field the reason that you may not have heard of him yet is because he simply didn't know that people gave a shit about this until very recently um but now he has come out of the woodworks and hopped on a zillion and a half metric podcast to kind of clear up a lot of the things that uh the forums of the 90s and early 2000s and you know articles from the different sites that people me and tom's age grew up reading and some of just the bro science that got passed around that may have not been the best uh, that has, you know, given us some good insights, but also perhaps led us astray or maybe just became dogma that we should revisit. Um, he's helping to, you know, kind of re-enlighten the space with this. So, um, Kurt, where can people reach you if they want coaching, eBooks, all that? Uh, my website is atomiclifecoaching.com. Uh, my Instagram is Kurt.Havens. My YouTube is Kurt.Havens. I can give you my link tree if you want to list down below. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, put it in the my book. My book is on my website. My book is also on anabolic bodybuilding. It's on Paul Barnett's website. Uh, we have online learning modules that are similar to J3U uh, that are on anabolic bodybuilding as well too. So we go into more depth. Our goal with that was to create the most in-depth anabolic knowledge that we could and put it in one place. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's like, if people really care about the pharmacology, this stuff, that's a great place to, uh, 
to get that stuff as well. I'll definitely be checking that out for sure. I told Kurt, I was like, another paycheck or two, and I'm doing the Lord of Modules. <laughs> I was like, I'm actually doing that. But so, guys, thank you guys for tuning in. Yeah. We're going to get back to doing MOGs uh, more regularly. But thank you guys for keeping up with these and everything. And definitely leave us some comments, five star review, share it around. Because um, obviously, we are doing you know this for free. But check out any of our coaching, anything that you can do to support for free. We very much appreciate Let us know what you want to see more of. Yada, yada, bing, bong, all that stuff. Have a fantastic day, guys. Thank you.